0: Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking with Dr. Anita Collins. Anita is an award-winning educator, researcher and author in the field of brain development and music learning. She is internationally recognised for her unique work in translating the scientific research of neuroscientists and psychologists to the everyday parent, teacher and student. Anita, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: In your book, you say that sound gathers the most information of any of the senses and is active right from birth before any of the other senses. You advocate for song over speech for babies. Why is that?
1: It's not so much advocating for song. It's kind of just saying that actually singing is our first and most natural language with babies, uh, but also one that we have a whole bunch of social, I don't know, myths, stigmas, thoughts around. And I think part of it is just saying actually... This is why song seems so uh, comfortable for us and why we want to sing with our babies um, and to our babies as well. But it's actually something that we should be aware of is very deep within us from an evolutionary point of view rather than being something that's, Something we should do. It's something if we feel we want to do, then it's perfectly okay. So, song is the first start, and and even the way we speak with our babies most of the time, it's a thing called motherese or parentese, which is that beautiful emotionally filled speech. And in a way, a baby hears that as song rather than speech to start with. So, it's just trying to help everyone understand the the nuances in sound for a baby, what they're experiencing, but also how they're processing it.
0: I found it quite interesting when you used the phrase you are your baby's favourite rock star. What do you mm. mean by that?
1: Um, it just is a way, It's a very emotive way of saying um, your baby loves your, your voice the most. You are the one they would turn on if, if they had the chance. So, And that's because uh, it's not so much what the sound is of our singing, but it, what, it's what it represents to the baby, which is a closeness, a security, a love, um, taking care of them when they don't, feel fantastic or they need something like to be fed or to be changed. It's about the fact that in that sound um, is all of this other meaning for the baby. And that's why it's
0: important. And what do you say to people who say, well, I can't sing.
1: Uh, (laughs) I have many quick answers (laughs) for that one. First of all, I, I say, if you've got a voice, you can sing because that's, that's our instrument. There's a difference between being able to sing and being able to sing in tune. And as soon as I start saying that, it's it's something like um, to be able to sing in tune is actually a a learnt skill or a practice skill. And parents, it's sort of, you can see them, their shoulders go down, they breathe out and they sort of go, oh, so I could learn how to sing in tune. It's like, yes, it's, it's just a learnt skill. We're not all born with it. Actually, very rarely are we born with it. We have these constructs in our society and we have tv programs that sort of bring out this idea that people are born with these incredible voices and they just pop out of nowhere um, and they have no training or uh, in it at all but they do they have heaps and heaps of training Um, but we like the story that it's just being given from nowhere that it seems to be magic but it's a really important skill that you know that that's what's in our voice our voice everyone has a voice everyone can sing not everyone can sing in tune but a baby doesn't care a baby just cares about who you are and how that sound relates to how they relate to you.
0: A lot of your book has to do with sound and, and the pure qualities of sound, I guess. And in fact, you identify sound as what you call a cognitive nutrient.
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of this research is sort of revealing to us how important our hearing is. And when I'm mean our hearing, it's not it's, it's not just the hearing of the sound and recognising what something is, it's what we do with that sound inside our head. It's the auditory processing of making meaning out of that sound, um, relating it to our environment. And so in which case, the easiest way I find to explain it is sound is not just a singular thing. It has multiple ingredients to it, just like a really balanced diet. Our brain thrives on a really balanced diet of sound, which is all kinds of different sounds, speech sounds, um, environmental sounds, silence is even a sound to our brains because it still keeps processing it to hear what's going on. You know, these are all nutrients and our brain thrives on them. And indeed, when we are in an environment where there's very little variety of sound, it actually starts to do damage to the brain because the brain has nothing to process and brains don't like that. Brains want to be able to keep processing what's going on around them.
0: It sounds like um, auditory baby formula to me. Yes, absolutely. You also talk a lot about this idea of keeping the beat. And you, in fact, put forward the idea that keeping the beat is the foundation or perhaps an indicator for all sorts of other skills, and especially reading. Why reading in particular?
1: It doesn't make immediate sense, or the connection is not immediate, and I totally understand that. It wasn't for me either, about why on earth music is something you could do that was music or had any connection to something that you did with language. But the answer came through with this understanding that music, is an, um, music and language share an overlapping neural network, meaning it has very similar pathway around the brain. And that pathway, it's, it's not just a, here's one place and here's the next place. Our brain is not like that. Our brain is incredibly elegant and incredible. It's not a machine, it's far more than that. And so it's about the connectivity that goes around the brain to make meaning. So we see it in little babies. That connectivity is really not present and they're working quite hard to make that connectivity um, because they can't tell either side of their body. They get fascinated that they've got two hands and they keep forgetting they've got two. Um, There's all these things going on for them. But the act of music making, particularly beat making, requires so many cognitive skills to work at the same time. So it's about connectivity and about synchronisation around the brain. Now, in order to take on... see, so reading is a monumental cognitive task. It's so hard to do. It's incredible that our brain is able to do it. Um, but in order to start reading, we have to already have this connectivity and this synchronisation all set up. Otherwise, we're trying to kind of run a marathon when we haven't walked in a year. It's, it, it just won't work. So what we've found out that music learning does is... It's a, an active activity which creates the connectivity, creates a synchronisation, and, and all, the way I look at it is creates the foundations for learning, which we then can put reading on top of and we can then do it successfully. So it's, it's not an immediate connection, but it's how music in, um, improves the brain and then what we can get that brain to do next because its foundations are all set.
0: As an extension to that, you put forward this simple equation or a sequence, if you like, hear, speak, read. Can you explain that process and why is it important to learning?
1: First, it's good to know where the saying came from. So I I go and visit labs all around the world and I spend an extended amount of time with anyone from the research lab assistant right up to the professor and just hear about what they do, try and circle it all in, try and learn. And I'd spent an hour with this particularly wonderful researcher and gone through some really hard cognitive stuff. And then she just said at the end of it, she said, it's really simple. It's like this. If a child can't hear a language sound, then they can't speak that language sound. If they can't speak that language sound, then they've got no hope of reading that language sound. And to me, I love that. If you can't hear it, you can't speak it. If you can't speak it, you can't read it. And... Being someone who grew up with a mum who was a reading um, recovery teacher, which means kids who've struggled with their reading, I saw where that process broke down and why it didn't work. And then I saw the ways that her program, but also how she worked with the kids to create those connections again. So what's fascinating about laying music over the top of that, music learning over the top of that, is the fact that music learning is the first and a really easy way for kids to um, hone their hearing. And what I mean by that is being able to hear the differences in speech sounds. So one of the ones they test a lot is the difference between but, duh, and g, which, if, we, if you say it to yourself, has the tiniest of little differences. So they work really, really hard to tell the differences between those three. And that musical learning helps you do that because it's like, it's a coordination part, but also say so if you've got a violin, you've got to move your finger just ever so slightly to get it in tune. And that's the nuances that come into that. And then the ability to speak it. So music, language, music and language, overlapping neural network. The process is that they hear the sound and it actually is like a little recording in their heads. It's like a, we've got an iTunes library in our head of those sounds and that we want to say the sound, but to say it, we've got to hear it in our head first. And we've actually been able to record what our brain hears. I know that sounds weird, but we can actually hear that now. And then we have to get that sound out and then it goes back into our ear and we double check what it is. So that's the speaking part, to hear it properly, make a recording and then speak it and then double check. And then reading is just an add-on to that. It's just an extra step that comes into that. So the, the more nuanced and the more highly tuned our little ones um, hearing can be we can then build on top of that to the speaking and the reading we then put into that the coordination connectivity synchronization of keeping a beat we've set our kids up for when they first start to read really really well but that extends that ability to communicate through language reading writing speaking goes all the way through school but also all the way through life.
0: Some of your research suggests that the critical period in a child's development is between the ages of zero and seven. Why is that? And what implications and effect does undertaking musical training during this period have for the immediate and the longer term?
1: Mm. It's, um, it's a tricky thing to write about because just as I was sort of finishing the book, some really new interesting research was starting to come out and say, well, maybe it's not as simple as zero to seven um maybe we have more changes through there so this is very typical of the field of research is you sort of they come across an idea or not come across they find an idea propose it test it and then they find out that it's more complicated than they thought which is everything we're finding out about brain development it's always more complicated than you think and it's never there's never a simple answer which is kind of a good thing too the zero to seven part came when they were trying to discover if there was a sensitivity period for brain growth Basically, that means when a brain is growing like crazy. And anyone who's had a child between zero and seven will know that they're a sponge. They pick up everything. And then there's a period about when they're seven, when they sort of seem to lull a little bit. Um, in their learning and their progress, and then they seem to go up again. So they wanted to find out what might be behind that. The answer is there is sensitivity periods for growth. Yes, there is one um, early in life. It doesn't, you know, end on your seventh birthday. It has almost a six to 12-month, or even 18-month sort of difference. And then kids go into this thing called a pruning period. And we do this all the way through our lives. And pruning is a horrible word, but it basically means the brain goes through and goes, I'm going to do some spring cleaning, I'm not going to tell you about it. And I'm going to start throwing out things that we don't need anymore. So for learning, that means kids kind of um, they kind of plateau for a little bit, and then they start learning again. Uh, the reason why music comes into that is musically trained kids tended to have a shorter pruning period. They basically did the same act, but it sort of it's, it was really short. And from a learning perspective, the less time the kids are plateauing, and the less time that they're hanging around waiting for their brain to get into gear for the next level of learning is great because it means they can have more active learning time. So the zero to seven thing's really fascinating. We now know that there might be sensitivity periods within the zero to seven as well. It's not just a, we're always learning all the same amount. Um, And they're starting to find that it is this connectivity, these periods of, of suddenly, I call them cognitive clicks, which is when everything seems to fall into place. I have two pictures on my wall from my daughter, which for me is the perfect example. One day she drew a normal picture that was going like this, the usual thing that kids do. And then the next day, say, um, sat down, same time of day, but she drew a face and she drew eyes and she drew legs. And it's like suddenly there was a cognitive click, that a whole bunch of things came into place for her um, in her learning that that's where she jumped from one to the other. So there we think in zero to seven, big amounts of learning, huge, but it also goes up and down. Um, all the way through that as well. And music learning is helping us to identify that, again, level of detail and nuance um, that is happening when when kids are developing and, and gives us just more information about what's happening for them.
0: You actually propose so many benefits for music learning, but one of the ones that I found quite fascinating was what you call the art of waiting or to, yeah. use, it, to use a technical <laughs> term, inhibitory control. What is it? And how does music learning contribute to the development of this faculty?
1: First thing is to say that it goes by a couple of names. So inhibitory control is the research name. Impulse control is like a common word a lot of us use. And self-regulation is also a similar kind of idea. Um, What it basically is, is a very human, um, very deep part of ourselves that basically has to wait for things. And when we have to wait for something, we experience a sort of a level of discomfort or frustration. Now, you know, when you have to ask a two year old to wait for their drink for another, you know, you can ask them to wait for two minutes, but that's all they can handle. And it's kind of like, that's the amount of their inhibitory control. When we're adults, sometimes we have to wait years for things to happen and that we're enacting and we're using our inhibitory control. Now it's a really important part of everything actually. It's part of making relationships. It's part of learning. It's part of staying on task or paying attention. Um, it, it comes into everything. And the more I work with this particular concept, the more I notice that it's one of the ones that will be affected by anything—lack of sleep, being hungry, not feeling like you're on top of it with, with all your thinking. It, it, everything will get in the way of our inhibitory control. We constantly, all the way through our lives, have to deal with managing our inhibitory control and. The problem is when you live with someone or a family, everyone has different levels of inhibitory control at different times. Now, music learning well, musically trained kids and adults were found to have these really high levels of inhibitory control. They could wait. They could sit in an uncomfortable cognitive situation, even an uncomfortable physical one for a lot longer than non-musically trained kids and adults could do. And it's a question, well, why is that? And the answer seems to be that in the act of learning music is a little bit of a discipline every single day. You have to try at it every single day and you get it wrong far more than you get it right. But that process is tiny little, I call it micro dosing on discomfort. So it's tiny little bits and we kind of get used to it. God, I've done this before. So it transfers into say, you know, I could see a fourth grader sitting down doing um, a maths worksheet. And they've got question one and they've got question two, right? But then they get to question three and they just keep getting the wrong answer. Like, I just can't figure out why and they can't figure out why. And they go, I can't go on to the next one. And they just are sitting in that discomfort. It's exactly the same feeling they've had when they're sitting with their cello, you know, doing their practice. But they are willing to sit with it for just that little bit longer until they get that question right. And a lot of the time, I think kids, and particularly in first world countries, they're getting less and less exposure to being uncomfortable we've got more and more ways through technology and through the way education is run to not be uncomfortable to move on to do something different and we are finding it's a problem because now a lot of schools are putting into place persistence and resilience programs because it's exactly the skill that the kids aren't getting through all of their other learning. So the, But the musically trained kids are very, very good at it. And it's because built into every part of their day is a little bit of discomfort, which they're not afraid of and they're willing to, to sit with for a greater goal, for a longer goal.
0: It actually leads me to the next question, which is this idea of uh, the lifelong learner, which... probably very important these days, considering the rate of technological Mm. change and uh, social and economic pressures on people. You've said that musically trained children love learning and the feeling of frustration or discomfort as you've said why is being comfortable with discomfort important in the process of becoming a lifelong learner someone who mm. continues and persists
1: I think it, you know it's a reasonably obviously one when if we think about as adults we've we've had tough times in our lives we've had things that we've started gone oh, I don't know if I can do this um, or I've never tried this before and we've got to kind of a look ahead and go, I believe that I can find a way to do something, but also be willing to sit in that discomfort for a little while as you go through going, I just don't know what I'm doing. I, I don't feel confident. There's a, there's a opposite side to that. If you constantly felt uncomfortable and you seem to get nowhere and have success, we give up pretty easily exercise. Great example. If we might, you know, try really, really hard for a month and feel like we haven't achieved whatever goal we were trying to go for, then it's, it gives you nothing. There's no reward to it. But the flip side with music learning is that while there's a lot of discomfort, when the reward comes, and what I mean by that is when, and, it's a, and it can be as tiny as achieving, achieving a note that you haven't been able to get before on an instrument, the brain reward network fires up like crazy and sends this massive jolt through us that goes, yes, I got it. That's what we'll see on the outside. Kids will go, nailed it, or yes, or something like that. And that's the reward network firing off. So for all that discomfort, you get this really big payback at the other end of it, which, goes, which is the reward network going off. And it's the, it is literally our own personal drug factory that makes us feel great. And that's why it's a really important thing to get kids to actually look forward to the discomfort because they know the reward is coming. And then when they get the reward, they jump back to the discomfort going, oh, I want to do that again, but I want to do it better. And then they go back into this. discomfort. So lifelong learning is that as well. Lifelong learning is willing to go, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to learn how to ride a motorcycle or I'm going to learn how to knit or I'm going to learn, I'm going to read a book that I've always, you know, I've started five or six times and I want to finish it. There's a level of discomfort in that, but the reward is also present as well. And if we are really comfortable as human beings with that back and forth, with that discomfort reward, then we're willing to take on new things and we're continually willing to work our brains. And and we now know that not just for brain health, but for physical health as well, we need to keep our brains active, but also not just doing the same thing again, we need to try new things and we need to live in that discomfort reward cycle.
0: Dr. Anita Collins, thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I've been talking to Dr. Anita Collins about her new book, The Music Advantage. It's published by Alan and Unwin and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name is Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.